1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hi there. I'm Joe Krolder with the New Books Network and we are talking today with Kristen Hussey, who has written a fantastic book called Imperial Bodies in London: Empire Mobility and the Making of the of British Medicine 1880 to 1914. Welcome to the New Books Network, Kristen.
0: Thanks, thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited for our conversation. Me too. First question:
1: Who is Kristen Hussey? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, um, who knows? Um, well, I'll, that's. I mean, it's a complicated one because I'm I'm sort of two things. I, I'm a historian uh, of medicine and science, and I'm a curator, a museum professional. Um, and at different points of my career, I'm. I'm doing one or the other thing. And at, at this particular moment in time, I'm trying to do both simultaneously. So it's sort of a double hat that I wear.
1: <laughs> you are living the dream. Ugh. Oh, goodness.
0: Uh, that is, is a- it.
1: <laughs> no, I, I got my museum credential as well as my history PhD degree and I'm like uh will a museum have me and the answer's been no but it's
0: okay (laughs) it's you know it's honestly it's really difficult and it's I would say one of the things if I get asked to speak you know to groups the most it's it's in the my capacity as a museum curator and it's um I think it's often his you know history students sort of have a an idea that it's you know, it's one of the careers that you that you can have as a historian, but actually, you know, to be a museum curator and a museum professional, it's like its own vocation. Um, and while many museum curators are themselves historians, that's often not what is getting you those jobs. So it's it's a weird sort of relationship.
1: <laughs> it it certainly is. And yeah. and it's something for our, our listeners to think about if you're thinking about going in that direction. <laughs> uh, but I do want to talk about Uh, the history of medicine and what got you interested in that?
0: Yeah, I mean, through my work in museums, um, I've had a very, my career wasn't originally aiming towards uh, history or being a historian. Uh, And I did my master's degree in in museum studies in in curatorship. uh, And I got my first job at the Science Museum in London. And my job was to catalog the pharmaceutical and surgical collections uh, of their national medical collection. So um, it wasn't something I knew a lot about before that point, but then I was just literally immersed in the history of medicine all day, every day, and I became just immediately fascinated by it. And I was reading all of these books, you know, on the on the train home, uh, and kind of through that uh, more hands-on experience, I ended up working as an assistant curator at a, a museum called the Hunterian Museum in London, which is part of the Royal College of Surgeons. So it, it was a real hands-on Training in the history of medicine and surgery, uh, and then after a few years of doing that, I was so I was so motivated to to really deepen my understanding that I went back to do a PhD in in history.
1: Outstanding! It's just so funny how we get immersed in things and and it just piques our interest. Yeah. So tell me about the title of the book. How did you come up with the title? Uh, the title Imperial Bodies. <laughs>
0: you know it's it's a funny this this book had and i'm sure many authors will you know feel familiar with this it, it's had so many titles um over the years and this is one that on i mean the honest answer is that i was in a pub with some friends complaining about how i couldn't come up with like a an exciting enough name for my book and we like had a pieces of paper on the table and i was just writing down all the keywords and we were like trying to like i don't know jenga that <laughs> into something which felt right. Um, so it, it was trying to mash together. I mean, I'm really happy with the title at the end because it really is literally just, it's it's what's in the book. It's what this book is about. It's about imperial bodies. It's about the city of London. It's about the British Empire. It's about moving and it's about British medicine and it's about their relationship to each other. Um, so that's sort of how it all all came into being. Um, and actually imperial, I mean, imperial bodies is The name of a book, a great book that already exists by Elizabeth Collingham. So, you know, the in London um, is trying to sort of like spice it up and say, okay, you know, we've we've written about the idea of the history of the body in the empire. What's what's new in this? What's making it different? It's that kind of metropolitan focus.
1: Yeah, I, I when I first saw the title, I was like, hmm. And then <laughs> and then, you know, uh, halfway through the book, it's like it totally makes sense. So uh, so thank you so much for, for that answer. Uh, this is Joe Crawler, New Books Network. I'm talking with the fabulous Kristen Hussey. Um, extraordinaire, and we're gonna be talking about, I guess, the, the way you broke this down, yep. the liver, the brain, the eyes, the blood. What other parts of the body did you research and then kick out?
0: You know, the, there was going to be another chapter called The Skin. Ah. Um, uh, and I think dermatology is such a – I mean, The Skin is sort of our borderland, right, between us and the world. Uh, I mean, sort of a bit like The Eyes, but it's very personal and um, – very sort of unsettling the idea of things on and in, in our skin. And it was a it was a chapter that was in the main about leprosy uh, and anxieties around uh, the importation of leprosy and yeah, the experience of of Europeans getting leprosy abroad and coming back. Um, but in the end, i f- I felt that it was it, it's research that's gone into some articles I've done, but it's I mean leprosy is a very well trodden. Subject. So yeah, I decided against it in the end, but I'm still fascinated by the skin.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and there's absolute uh, relationship between the skin because that's going to be the first organ that catches all that sun and heat in the yes. and the tropics, yeah, and then transfers that on into uh, other other vital organs here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, brilliant. Um, I one of the things that that struck me at the beginning was. Um, Infrastructure. And I think it's an important point in your book in two ways. One is the physical planet infrastructure. So, like digging out that Suez Canal, steamships, bigger, faster, uh, and then the dredging of deep water ports that makes it possible for imperial bodies to get from the empire back to London quickly. You want to? Talk about that.
0: Yeah, I'm out. It's, it's a really it's a really good point because it would be silly to to say that it's a book about movement and mobility without thinking about what it is that makes that mobility possible. Um, and while it's it's not a book that's a, a technological history, um, the idea of infrastructure and technology completely underlies all of. Of what it's about. And really, I think steam power, as you say, is, is a super crucial part of what's happening. Because if were it not for sort of quick enough transportation technology but also arguably uh communication technology um that's really coming to the fore in this sort of late 19th century period none of these conversations uh or exchanges would have been possible and i was and i was really interested also in the book of the idea of the of the post i think it would have been cooler to get even even more into that you know how um not just people you know circulated but uh insects, uh, you know, being shipped. I talk a bit about, you know, blood samples getting sent in the post, another really important um, medical infrastructure that I think would be is still could use more delving into.
1: Yeah, I think there's one point in the book where you talked about someone shipping mosquitoes in the post from Italy to to London. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who that was. was, that Manson?
0: It was. I mean, um, yeah, he was part of, of the, the group of researchers, sort of a collaboration of Italian and British researchers that were coordinating that. You know, and it's, it's, it's such a funny logistical problem. How, how do you get live mosquitoes from uh, you know, an environment warm enough to support them to England, quick enough for them to survive? So they, you know, originally wanted to get mosquitoes from India, but that was much too great a distance to be practicable. So they settle on uh, Italy and, and also a little bit in Spain. And then they try it a number of times and it's it's not working. And in the end, Manson manages to negotiate this like special delivery with the postmaster general that they're, they're going to throw all their effort to get these mosquitoes from uh, from Italy to London in, in basically 24 hours. And that in itself is like, what in what an achievement! Yeah, it's, it's
1: amazing—the FedEx of its times, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I bring this up because um, uh, my—I I went to a, a school in West England, Bristol, University of Bristol, and um, it's got this floating harbor. And, and to go up the Avon, you get all, all these locks um, to, to raise the ships up to get to that harbor. But at some point, the ships just became too big, and so what. Bristol is really the port is like this 18th century, maybe early 19th century still. Okay. We can handle wooden ships, <laughs> but you know, you, you, then you go to London and, and you realize how brilliant London is for, uh, handling steam. Um,
0: I, yeah. I-, I mean, there, are Now I think I've, I lived in London for many years and that's where I did my PhD. And I think sometimes people forget some of the inner docks, you know, somewhere like St. Catherine's docks, um, that, that they ever were really docklands because it's been such a long time since they were used in that way. Whereas the, the deep docks out, you know, you know, St. Albert's dock, they really feel, they still very much have that kind of industrial feeling to them. Um, and they are, they are an important part of the city, but they're also just that little bit it's almost the fact that they are a little bit far um, that that extra as you say logistical challenge that makes them kind of an exciting and interesting place because they're both a challenge to get um, pe- to get people there whether it's people who are working there people who want to go and arrive there you know and goods from that area and the reason why you know the i talk a lot in the book about the Albert Dock Hospital as a particular site of medicine which was made for the deep docks because if if you had a sailor coming off of one of those steamships with a broken leg or a serious injury there's no way they were going to make it to Greenwich in time it's simply too far it's sort of hard you know the mind boggles at the the large size of the london docks in this period um and just sort of because it happens to be there it's this accident injury place that patrick manson's like hmm i think i can make a better use of this that that tropical medicine comes to be what what it is so the infrastructure is always there beneath
1: it. And it's a good segue to talk about the other in- infrastructure that I I, I, I found fascinating in this book, and that's the printing of trade journals and magazines, the kind of the hierarchy of medical knowledge being passed around London at the time. And, and can you talk to that a little bit?
0: Yeah. I mean, the print, the print media, um, is a, is a really large part of this book, whether it's, um, advertisements. I uh, talk a lot about advertising in, in newspapers across the country, but also the many, many different local newspapers within London. Um, uh, newspaper reports, um, you know, autop- autopsy reports, court reports, uh, and then also the sort of specific medical, surgical trade journals. Uh, it's just, it's, when I think about the print culture in the 19th century, I mean, it's, it's, I think about it in terms of sort of the internet age, almost in a sense, in terms of how much information there is there, how much there is to read, um, and kind of the fascination people have with keeping up uh, with the news and how much information there is coming out, you know, from within the city and around the world. So it's both a, an exciting mat- material to work with as a historian, but also quite overwhelming. And I think something that increasingly historians now are arguing that when we work with, you know, nineteenth century print media, we have to be more cautious, I think, in, in trying to understand what the different, like, purposes of, of all of those journals were, you know, who, who is editing them? Who, who are they written for? What are the different communities who are reading them? Because I think it's quite easy to um, misinterpret maybe what's in there if you're not really thinking about yeah what what communities are aligned with different journals and it's it's something i try and do with uh the indian medical gazette for example is to is to not just present um stuff that i'm reading in it but but really think about the context of of who's reading it and writing it and, and what does that mean within the medical community you know how are they how are those discussions perceived because of who's associated with a particular uh co- you know branch of print media
1: i absolutely love the fact that you um, related this to uh, the modern internet uh, as far as so much information, because there's also quite a bit of misinformation too. Yeah. And you talk a lot about uh, quack medicines mm-hmm. at the time and and flooding the market with all these weird homeopathic sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, care to talk about that?
0: Yeah. i th- I wish I could remember it now. I sh- I think I reference I think I give a statistic like an exact statistic in the book of what percentage of uh like newspapers revenue comes from patent medicine advertisements and it, i don't know i can't remember exactly what it, what it was but it was an enor- an enormous amount um, and some scholars have argued that the newspaper industry was propped up by the sale of patent medicines it was it was so ubiquitous in the period and if, if you work at all with victorian newspapers you know it's overwhelming the amount of, of pages that are taken up by the selling of of yeah so, sometimes i mean i mean very various right um i talk in the book about there's a there's a big commission in the in the turn of the 20, you know early years of the 20th century to try and counteract the patent medicine trade and they uh they take to the lab right samples of what is in all of these uh kind of mysterious medicines are they actually doing anything that they claim to and they find that for the most part they're just laxatives in, <laughs> in the main you know i mean some of them contain some of them contain really bad and dangerous things but actually many of them were like sugar and water and like, yeah, rhubarb laxatives, Um, which, you know, maybe that I think it's a time where there's a lot of digestive disease. So, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with taking some laxatives if you need them, but it was probably not going to cure cancer or consumption or, <laughs> whatever or whatever else whatever
1: else or um, yeah. oh i i have covid let me take some horse dewormer you know it's uh, it just it, i guess what i'm getting at is there's such a parallel to today it's,
0: yeah it's although kind of yeah i guess for me a bit also like today i i feel a very strong empathy for people in these situations you know and i think part of what I'm trying to do in the, in the, in the section where I talk the most about patent medicines, about tropical returners who are kind of struggling with, you know, chronic dysentery um, that are taking, you know, whatever they are being told in the newspapers is, is going to save them. You know, it's a time where a lot of people don't have access to the kind of healthcare we have now. Um, And just, I, I really sort of feel for being in, being in a position like that. And I mean, it's, you know, and but that for me that's where the difference is I think because yeah not I'm not that I know that much about horse, horse medicine um, but the, you know the, today I think people have a lot more access and knowledge um, about med- medicine and medical care and are, are making choices to do things like that whereas I think it's not it's not quite the same for. 19th century people
1: you're being very kind (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking with uh, Kristen Hussey Uh, the book is Imperial Bodies in London Empire Mobility and the Making of British Medicine 1880 to 1914 I I do want you to speak to um, two historians that you quoted here Antoinette Burton and Tony Ballantyne Uh, And they talked about the kinetic model of imperial space. And when I read that, I went, oh my, oh my, this is true. This is so true of the empire because it's, it's in flux. It's constantly moving. It's this energy. Um, And what you did is to take the spatial theory that's out there and merge it with the history of medicine. And I I wondered if you feel like you succeeded.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it would be—it's hard to say. Um, I mean, especially when you com- compare it to to people like Burton uh, and Ballantyne, Wow, um, it's like people who I admire so much. Um, and I think that their work on the the kinetic model is a really important contribution. And I, I can't say that there's any—I haven't—I haven't developed any of my own uh, theories of of connectedness in the book, um, but. For me, I think what I what I hope that I've done is taken some of the theoretical contributions of geographers, especially people like Alan Lester, and just shown how they can be used in the context of the history of medicine. Because I think, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say, now, now I'm going to get in trouble, but I think it would be fair to say that historians of medicine are maybe not as open to theory, maybe, <laughs> as other parts right, of history. Right. I mean, like, like so, so maybe take, for example, like the, like the history of emotions and affect theory is really an, an area where we're, we're getting really excited. But, you know, ge- people, historians of empire use an awful lot of theory in their work. And I think it's because the topic of empire is not one that you can approach without some kind of a tool because it's so... Big and as you say, moving and dynamic, that it just slips away from you every time you try and look at it. So these theoretical tools are absolutely essential for building those bridges to make. It, I mean, to make, to make it possible to say anything meaningful. Um, and I mean, whether people get a sense of a world on the move in the book, I hope so. I hope so. Um, it was always a, a tension writing it because. it's a book of stories. It's a book of people's stories and particular moments and kind of a a micro history of it. so know it's an approach that you work with also. So you're sort of, you're freezing things in the moment to show how they're mobile. And that's very, that's a very kind of contradictory approach.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think you pulled it off by the way. I think you did very well. Uh, One of the things that um, shocked me was in the book very early on and throughout the book is London is looked at as at this period of time to show you the dynamics of, of this kinetic movement, uh, of this spatial theory. I'm an 18th century guy. So, uh, people always left London because it was, us <laughs> it was just this place that was horrid. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to recover, you went to Bath in West England, right? Uh, But now I'm reading London is a health resort for people who are, you know, throughout the empire, go back to London, you'll get healthy. And I'm like, what?
0: Really? I think it's, um, it was a, a part of the research that I was also really su- surprised by, which is uh, why a lot of that goes in there, you know, is is it is it healthy or unhealthy to be in London? And for the most part in history, you know, we, we read about London as being a cold and sickly and and terrible place, but it all kind of matters, you know, what your what angle you're looking at it from. But I think it's sort of, it speaks to some of the dynamics of Empire and imperialism in that you know for for something like the Empire to make sense, it has to have this sort of immense amazing uh, cosmopolitan wealthy fantastic center to it you know that's that's the home of civilization so it, it's a difficult role for a city like London to play, which is you know dirty and and busy and disease ridden and and you know how can you be both the sort of shining sentinel of empire and also that kind of experience and it's these sort of conceptual knots um that you get into when you try and think about an empire that's in a lot of it's a lot of double talk
1: because uh, uh, i mean london at this time you have the the west end but then you have the east end and then they're like two totally different planets i mean that's the that that's the best way i could put it um but yeah, it's, it just struck me as kind of funny. Um,
0: yeah, and, and I think that contrast of, of West and East is definitely there in, in the book as well, because the experiences, you know, of talking about a, a Lascar sailor living in London's East End and, uh, you know, someone who's just moved home from India and is, is settled in Kensington, um, they're living in the same city, but their experiences are completely opposite. So I also
1: enjoyed, um, as you just mentioned, the the scattering of stories here. And um, readers would be very familiar with Mr. Rudyard Kipling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering if you have the book in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, And on page 31, there's this brilliant introduction um, with Mr. Kipling. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could read that for us.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I love this quote so much. Okay. Okay. But in all this jam of work done or devising, demands, distractions, excitements, and promiscuous confusions, my health cracked again. I had broken down twice in India from straight overwork, plus fever and dysentery, but this time the staleness and depression came after a bout of real influenza when all my Indian microbes joined hands and sang for a month in the darkness of Villiers Street. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, i mean poor rudyard but yeah. uh <laughs> at, at least he's having a i don't know he's, he's staying true to who he is
0: yeah but this yeah this sense of um of carrying with you you know of having something living inside you some part of your indian experience that you are never got rid of um and especially one that's uh, set off by as you say, the kind of dark, damp, dirty nature of London, um, which is you know, almost a hazard in itself as much as having a dysentery bug. Um, it, I mean, yeah, it speaks to so much of... It's, it, many experiences of people like Kipling, uh, Anglo-Indians with a similar kind of experience, just captures it so well, I think.
1: Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the liver and how did physicians come to focus on that particular body part?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the answer to that could be really long. Um, as you probably know, uh, you know, we could go back to Galen talking about the liver is the center of health because it's, you know, the largest organ in the body and therefore must be commiserately important. Um, uh, but i But I think in the 18th century, the liver becomes a really a hot topic um, of health, the idea that, you know, unless your digestion is is correct um – you, you can't possibly be well, and it becomes even, uh, you know, there are a number of historians that argue it becomes very fashionable uh, to have a liver disease. To be bilious means that you, um, you know, live a, a luxurious life, or you're someone who has the time to, to eat and think. So by the time we get into the 19th century, the liver still kind of holds this uh, important place in medical thinking, but also in kind of in, in cultural thinking. Uh, and then it's really people like, James Johnson uh, the surgeon James Johnson who who found a theory. Uh, for why it is that the liver is so central to the experience of people who've been in in heat, and he's trying to make what what perhaps in the past was more associative. He's trying to find the the mechanism, the anatomical mechanism to explain why your liver uh, is out of sorts if you've been living in in India. Even though there's some there's there's someone in the book who argues that it, it could be that uh, there's some kind of intergenerational tendency to have liver problems that we've we've been the British have been in India so long that we're now inheriting. Uh, disturbed livers, which I think is a really fun idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It fascinates me because I've been to India um, and um, traveled throughout the tropics Mm -hmm. and diet has always been immensely important. And Mm -hmm. I I go there and thinking, well, I'm in Rome, let's do what the Romans do. If I'm in India, I'm going to eat the finest Indian food. Mm -hmm. Um, I never got sick um and, and i'm just curious how someone took the heat and the sun that hits you on the skin and you sweat and then somehow that's the focus of the liver hmm. uh, it kind of threw me for a, a little bit
0: yeah the idea of this this sort of again the skin how the skin and the liver interact with each other um that somehow through sweating or not sweating um it was inhibiting your liver's production of of bile and that if, you know, if you sweat too much, um, then you'll, you'll stop being able to sweat and then your liver will become really stagnant. The only thing you can do is, is take baths and kind of rub yourself briskly and, um, but I mean, it's, it does sort of make sense if you think about a body that's unaccustomed to heat. You know, what's one of the main things that's happening? You're sweating a lot, um, so you start to think, well, what kinds of effects could this have on the body? Um, but I, you know, I think that in the past, ideas of health are are so tied up with the gut, um, maybe more than we re- realize. You know, I think today we're quite like brain centered people and i think in the past the gut was just so central to people's understandings of of balance and how their body stayed in balance Uh,
1: i think that's true i think there was such a hand-to-mouth existence (laughs)
0: um
1: and and i think that carried through from the 18th to the 19th maybe even into the 20th century Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah um I'm talking with Kristen Hussey. You're listening to uh, the New Books Network. We're looking at imperial bodies in London. And um, one of the other things that fascinated me is this word that I used often and you use as well, reciprocity. Um, so it's this. It's not just from the empire back to London, but it's also London to the empire and and the back and forth that goes on. Mm. Uh, in, in this period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it's um it's Douglas Haynes who describes it as an imperial medical culture. Um that it's it's almost you know, pointless. You know, to, to have arguments about—is it one way or is it the other way? It's—it's it's that it's all the same thing. It's all a kind of constant um, conversation, negotiation, um, remaking that's that's happening. Um, and I guess what I was interested in doing here is just trying to tease out some of those. Remakings and trying to understand some of the mechanisms that was mediating, uh, you know, what is brought in, what's allowed out, what's uh, what becomes sort of standard practice and what doesn't, um, because it's, I think it's fair to say at the end of the nineteenth century, it's maybe not the kind of, you know, fluid exchange of ideas that that was perhaps more the case early on, uh, you know, a lot of people who've done really great work around medical plants and the pharmacopoeia and showing, you know, how how Indian medicine was incorporated into the British pharmacopoeia in this sort of more fluid 18th century period. And I think in the 19th century, this, yeah, this remaking, this connection is still happening. It just it takes a different form and is mediated by different forces. So that was what I was uh, hoping to find a way of, of kind of grasping onto materially.
1: I mean, how else do we get quinine, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. If it's not for the empire, um, I, I, w- I was looking at one point where uh, there's a quote. I think it was Edward Waring or maybe James Ronald Martin, but they were keenly aware of emotional and mental toll of people reintegrating back into British society. I, you have someone who might be working for the East Indies company or the Indy office or they're, you know, they're stationed in Mumbai, spend a few years and then they come back, but it's that mental and emotional toll. Mm. I wish you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's a big part of the book. Um, Quite a lot of the sort of the first half of the book really deals with um, the experiences of, of people I call tropical returners or, or ex-colonials. Um, and sort of the the costs of empire, in a sense, um, what it what it takes to be a part of that imperial machine, which are which are very different depending on. Cl- I mean, class is an, an important element because there are stories in the books of a very working class soldiers um, who are drafted into the army because they have no other choice, um, and then are, are sent abroad, and you know perhaps they become ill or it's just really challenging for them to be away from their families and then they end up back in london with absolutely no support or training whatsoever so it's often little surprise we find them you know dragged in front of a court um for for stealing because they're starving or they've become addicted to alcohol and therefore they're in the asylum um and the stories are just really harrowing i think um which which isn't to take away of course from the fact that the the burdens of the empire were definitely borne by colonized people, but at the same time, I think it's also interesting to think about how imperialism and the practice of imperialism was harmful uh, for many different kinds of people who were involved.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Um, I I want to shift gears once again here, and there's an archive in London that's just absolutely wonderful, and I know you spent a lot of time in it called the Welcome Library. Talk to us about it. It is an amazing place.
0: It is. I can only hope. I really hope that they're going to. Buy this book. If you're listening, librarians <laughs> of the Welcome Library, please buy my book because it is my career aspiration to see a book, you know, my book sitting on their new acquisitions shelf, um, because it's a it's really a home for historians of medicine around the world, and um, both in terms of the, the secondary resources you can get there, but also really amazing primary source um, collections. So uh, one thing that I came across in my work that, that I was, I was so excited by, um, was this, uh, r- this resource I talk about in the, f- in the fourth chapter of the book, which is about Patrick Manson. And I was trying to find out more about the patients at the Albert Dock hospital, um, and to have a look at some of those patient records, uh, you know, classic historian of medicine source, but, um, the early Albert Dock hospital records don't exist anymore Um, And there are some, I mean, I can say within the historical community, there are some rumors about why that is that I won't repeat here, but there it's like Mm. slightly salacious, but I was really struggling to find any kind of records of patients there. And then in the welcome archives, I pulled up, um, it's a scrapbook. Uh, of George Carmichael Lowe, who was a parasitologist who worked there for a while, and I didn't. I mean, I was just looking at it because I, I knew the name. Uh, and then at the front of this book, like almost like j- jotted, kind of on the cover, were these lists of patients and patient names and times and dates of people at the hospital who were part of a, a study on on like wow. blood on blood worms on filariasis. And it was it's a very incomplete record, um, but I I use it to make some statements about. Um, the kinds of patients who who were were part of the research that they that they did there, and what role that race played, but it's just it just goes to show like you just never know what you're going to find in the archive.
1: I know for from my experience, not only what you just described, being finding things that just fit and like oh my, um, this is really going to help me, um, but also the people that are archivists mm-hmm. and that help you out did you find that at welcome library
0: yeah of course of course and there are people librarians there that i've known a couple people who i've known for quite a while um also because i mean i think i'm immensely privileged to have been for a time a part of that world of uh curators and librarians and archivists who work so hard to preserve and share the history of medicine um in, in London and and in the UK, and it's it's quite a tight knit group of people who try and support each other because it's, I mean, like so much of the practice of history in the United Kingdom at the moment is really coming under fire in terms of uh, resources, in terms of staffing, and it's just absolutely irreplaceable uh, knowledge that these people are um, working hard to to save. It's it's yeah, a really amazing group.
1: Yep. Thank you for talking uh, to us about that, because archivists play such a vital role in what historians do. And and I never really get a chance to talk about it here on the New Books Network or with other people. But in this case, I think it's warranted to talk about how amazing the staff is at the Wellcome Library. Yeah.
0: And also, and I will also say at the London School of Tropical Medicine, I I spent an enormous amount of time in their archive. Yes, yes. Um, and what what generous people. Um, I hadn't even realized going in that they hold also an object, like material culture collection. Um, and one of the days I was there, I was talking, so I was researching Patrick Benson and I had a lot of Benson archives out. Uh, and one of them said, oh, did you know that we have his trokar? So Patrick Benson invented a sort of a liver, um, a, a surgical tool for for puncturing and draining abscesses of the liver, you know, speaking about the, the liver as a sort of tropical organ, it was a, a main tropical disease that people suffered. You'd probably get a parasite in the liver and it would make an abscess. And they were like, hold on, hold on. And when I'm so, just came back and, and you know, give me like, look, look at this. Um, it's, it's such a joy to share that, you know, excitement with, with an archivist. It,
1: it, it absolutely. Is. Thank you for talking about it. Um, I'm talking with, uh, Kristen Hussey, she's wrote a a fantastic book, Imperial Bodies in London, Empire Mobility and the Making of British Medicine. And just a quick question about that. Um, 1880 to 1920, the leader in medical research, would you consider it to be London? Globally? (laughs) Globally. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah well now in this moment that you've asked me the question i worry that i've done that thing that all historians worry about where i've just become too immersed in my sources and i'm not thinking about them critically enough <laughs> uh you know that i'm oh yeah i've just accepted that london is uh sort of leading the world I, I i still think that's fair i think it's fair to say um that london is the center of of medical knowledge gl- globally in this period um although undoubtedly rivaled by the French. Uh, I think I think it has to be said um that a lot of the part of the reason why there's so much like energy and and passion is going into British medicine in the late 19th century is because they're trying to keep up um with the French and the Germans, especially in the in the realm of tropical medicine where the 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 French, you know, Charles Lavran are making really important discoveries. So when when Manson's writing to uh, Ronald Ross, he says often, you know, we have to, we have to claim it, uh, for, for England, for Britain. So there's a, <laughs> there's such a strong sense of, of nationalism in what they do. Um, and a really, yeah, a really purposeful sense that London is, is and must remain the center of medicine, and, but that it needs to be made to be so it needs to be maintained in that way. and th- And then there's also, you know, the fact that London guards its privileges, jealously so you know the fact that you couldn't become you know you couldn't qualify as a as a physician or a surgeon in India which is you know insane that you'd have to get to London in order to take the exams to call yourself a doctor it's um it's a yeah very purposeful focusing of that power in the city.
1: I just got this image of Manson uh with a needle so I'm going to Plunge into your liver and drain your abscess for England.
0: <laughs> for England, so funny as well because he's he's Scottish, um, but uh, really writes about. I mean, well, that's like a whole other story about the relationship of like of uh, the nations within the United Kingdom. Um, but yeah, there's right. love. The rhetoric is a lot around England, and yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, uh, another shift here. Uh, it's the insurance. Uh, that's behind all of this. Uh, yeah. The Standard Life Company, you point out, and uh, and how how do we put an insurance fee on those people who are traveling to the tropics? And at first, the fees are really super high, but then comes the the medicine, and I want you to describe what happens after that
0: the The insurance question and the work of actuaries is is such a fascinating one that I wouldn't have really thought about before working on this topic. Um, I think the, the practice of insuring one's life or one's home is a relatively recent one in the in the nineteenth century. Um, and I think it's just so commonly known that in all likelihoods, if someone is shipping out to India, that they may not come back. Um, the idea that you ought to put something aside for your family in that case really fuels the insurance industry. Um, so that when, you know, by in the, the early part of the 19th century, the fees are very high. So the kinds of people who are insuring their lives, uh, they call them first class lives, which is it's strange on so so many levels. Um, you know yes. the kinds of people that could have you know really afford to look after their family. Um, but then I think as the empire becomes more and more mobile, it's just it's it's sort of a supply and demand question. You know if you have so many potential customers, you know would you really turn them down by keeping the rates so high? So it's this weird negotiation between kind of capitalism and and wanting to. Um, profit the most possible from the industry and then the role of medicine in sort of negotiating or facilitating this very capitalistic idea that a life has a has a numerical value and I'm really fascinated by the role that these physicians play yeah in mediating between the industry of of the actuarial industry and and their patients um, I, I hadn't realized before working on the book how many doctors and surgeons supplemented their income working for, insurance companies um assessing whether or not yet people were well or not well even people like benson were essentially performing that role working for for the colonial office so there's always this like undercurrent of um of money of the finance between in in the medical world
1: you always got to follow the money as i say and it, it was a surprise to me as well i was i i didn't expect that a, a doctor of medicine would insert themselves into the insurance industry. And yet there it was. Good yeah. Job.
0: Yeah. But I think it's, um, you know, there's so many to, to be a, to be a physician or a surgeon in this period is so competitive. Um, you know, and people like Douglas Haynes have argued that, 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 that's sort of an important role that the empire was playing was providing jobs um, for the many people who were training to be physicians and surgeons and giving them, you know, a career opportunity. So if you couldn't get a job at a London hospital and maybe you couldn't get on a ship to go abroad, you know, you could, you could also work for an insurance company or a friendly society or um, things like that. So yeah, the economic history of medicine is fascinating.
1: Absolutely fascinating. Um one part in your book well, I'm, I'm I'm gonna switch over to the brain now <clears throat> and again here's here's the sun, here's the tropical heat beating down upon these um, british bodies and uh and then there's some people who claim uh, I think it was uh James Martin who looked at this and saying, Well, Europeans are just gonna droop and degenerate both physically and mentally. there's no doubt about it and and then you also quoted some uh, medical folks in the american philippines that are kind of noticing the same thing and
0: if if, if let's talk about that yeah um i mean i think it's a uh... A, a ubiquitous problem of of europeans in tropical climates that the physical discomfort um that comes with being in a heat that you're not accustomed to i mean I, to be fair i think people who grow up in in hot climates also find it very uncomfortable <laughs> to be uh to be in the heat um but especially if you're not used to it and it's the question of how to like live and stay well in hot climates is an interesting one because on the one hand um, complaining about the heat and the idea that being in the heat sort of physically and mentally and morally degrades you um, is also kind of a backhanded way of saying something about the people who live there, Um, you know, sort of implies that you couldn't be uh, intelligent and and civilized and sharp if you'd grown up in those climates. So it's a sort of negotiation of bodies that says, you know, well, it's, Partially, the reason why you know Europeans go insane in the tropics is because our brains are so superior; it's not made. We're not made for living in these sort of dark, uncivilized um, lands. But and on the, but on the other hand, there are, are gen, like genuinely physiological um, effects that happen from from being exposed to extreme heat. Uh, you know, so heat stroke is a very real problem for. British soldiers in in India. I mean, I think today um, increasingly with discussions of climate change, I think we're becoming really concerned about heat stroke and other heat related disorders. So um, thinking about the idea of the tropical sun is this, is this weird mashup of co- very cultural uh, values uh, and judgments that are being made and like a very definite physiological issue.
1: Yeah. I think we had um, a, a massive heat wave here in North America that hit British Columbia. I mean, temperatures mm. there got into 120 degrees. I think there were over 400 deaths related to uh, that one c- cyclonic heat wave. Oh, yeah, it was something that shouldn't have happened. I don't know if you heard. That. I did not. <laughs> uh, I, um... yeah.
0: But, yeah, I like. I I think this discussion about heat is is an important one, um, uh, but. In in the book, I do talk about how um, the the heat is being blamed for a lot of mental illness, um, which is probably not the result of the heat itself, and and the and the way that physicians uh, justify uh, the fact that it's it's being caused by the the climate. It's, to me is is fascinating that you know sort of uh, people like Joseph Fair, who are you know Indian surgeons who've worked in India, very convinced by uh, the argument that. That a a European brain will degenerate in the tropical sun, Um, and then when patients who've been, you know, stamped as sunstroke insane, come back uh, to London, other doctors working in Britain are like, "No, this is not. (laughs) That's not a real thing. You know, you're you're showing me a patient here who has." Very severe alcohol addiction. They suffer from delirium tremens, and they probably have syphilis. I'm going to say it's probably one of those things, and not the tropical sun. Uh, but it's you know, it's it's what's yeah. what's the place of this sort of cultural imagining in medicine?
1: But this place publicly too, which gets us to the McNaughton rules and the idea that in a trial you can plead insanity. Um, can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was really fascinated to find. Um, you know, It's a book about imperial bodies. So in, in all of the chapters that you can see me, I'm looking for the stories of imperial people in different domestic forums. Um, and if you Google, you know, not Google, sorry, but if you're working, say, in a, in a, in a newspaper archive, in the British newspaper archive, and you're looking up India soldier, you're going to get court records um, of, of criminal cases involving people. Um, who've lived in India for some time. And in many, many cases, they are suicide cases. That was probably the commonest sort of combination of words that would come up would be sort of India, soldier, suicide. Um, And they were very, suicide cases and other criminal cases are very widely reported in the print media, as we were talking about before, um, partially as as entertainment and partially as news. Um, But what I became really interested by was the fact that while physicians... British physicians were not necessarily convinced that you know it was fair to say that if you had sunstroke in India 20 years ago that's why you might end up being suicidal it it was an idea that had a lot of cultural capital and it was an idea that uh, that you know judges could grab onto and juries could grab onto and families could grab onto and say you know it is it's so it's such a hard you know toll being in india that it must explain why these people had such sad lives so i argue in the book that it becomes this sort of escape route um, of explaining you, you know mental illness or explaining potential criminal behavior as saying that in terms of sacrifice you know the reason why this has happened is they sacrifice their brains their bodies and their mental well-being in the service of empire so the idea that the sun has these long term and insidious effects have, serve a really important purpose uh, for for people for families especially rather than thinking about uh, you know, suicide which was at the time a, a a criminal a criminal act
1: yeah um I want to talk about the East indies company um I know they're big <laughs>
0: uh,
1: the thing that surprised me the most is that they had their own surgeons yeah okay I can see that and then they had their own asylums i, I was I was just plastered by this. So I, I guess I want to talk about the asylum end of things for how 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 big an industry is the asylum industry at the late 19th, early 20th century?
0: Well I think by by the early 20th century things are winding down a little bit. Um, but in throughout the 19th century, people talk about the you know the great confinement, the idea that somehow previously there hadn't been that much mental illness and then out of nowhere you get this i mean what's genuinely like a big business of asylums and what the east india company does is they they found a private asylum so this is very very common where you have basically one or two uh, physicians or alienists who rent a house um, and they kind of live in with their patients. So it's not quite an institution in in the way we think about now. It's it's like a sort of domestic environment in which people are cared for. Um, And so this is an arrangement that the East India Company comes up with um, to deal with uh, employees or even f- families of employees um, who suffer from mental illness whether while they're abroad in service or later on in, in their lives because you're always like kind of once you're an India office employee you always are sort of their responsibility in a sense um, and then the the asylum becomes a bit overpopulated and it becomes a very expensive arrangement and then eventually in the 1870s they found a much more formal hospital style asylum uh, in Ealing which is just just outside London where they move and then they they have a lot of their patients are very old ex East India company people from well after a time where the East Indian company no longer uh, functions you know cuz you know, people who were working in eight, you know 18 Twenty or eighteen thirty, and many of them are still alive in the end of the nineteenth century, right. um, even though time, you know, time has moved on, and they do they do get less and less patients uh, as the twentieth century nears, and eventually the asylum um, closes down. Anyone that's left is sent really to military naval asylums.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is a good segue for me to ask, a, uh, not to ask, but to point out one of the things I'm fascinated by is the is the competition and the need for imperial bodies Mm. and and there was there's a scene in the in your book Dr. Patrick Manson on Queen Anne Street hey son come in here. I'm going to want you to get stung by these malarial ridden mosquitoes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I told this story at an event recently. Um, and someone asked me afterwards, Oh my God, did he, did he die? I just want to be clear that Patrick Manson did not kill his own son by infecting him with malaria. Um, yeah. So the, there's Definitely, as you say, there's such a competition amongst medical practitioners uh, in the late 19th century to get their hands on uh, people who've lived in the empire in in some senses, but especially, um, you know, non-white basically black and brown people it, you know bodies that are perceived as very exotic it's it's very illustrious for a physician to be able to work on someone like that because then they can show them at the clinical society and who knows what kind of exciting things you might find but if you didn't have a, a patient like that to work with um, yet you could try and make your own uh, like Manson does by uh, doing a trial uh, with malaria malarial mosquitoes where his son is bitten and I, this was a, a consensual trial I will say because at this time Patrick Manson's son uh, who's also called Patrick but goes by Bernie I think um, he's also he's a medical student and then uh, so he volunteers for this trial where they try and get mosquitoes to bite him and see if he catches malaria and actually it's a crucial experiment at the time because so many people still believed that malaria was being caused by environmental factors by miasmas and bad airs but if Manson could show that a person who'd, who'd not been abroad who had been in London this whole time could get it from a mosquito then it was going to be, he believed, definitive proof that this is how it was passing and then actually his son wrote a little uh, note about the, his personal experience of it and published it in the British Medical Journal so it was a real, it was a real family affair
1: <laughs> I'm wondering if young Patrick took out an insurance policy before <laughs>
0: this thing
1: happened. That is fascinating, actually. And it just shows the competition for, I, I need someone to do this. and to show the pathogens in the blood.
0: Yeah. And he uh, he I think he tells in his diary that he was so, you know, excited and invested in in the outcome of this because he was very passionate about demonstrating that malaria was caused by mosquitoes that at a certain point he felt he just had to remove himself like lest he somehow be seen as like interfering with the experiment because he really wanted it to be taken very very seriously in the medical community even though it was in his house with his son. Yes,
1: absolutely. I'm talking with uh, Kristen Hussey, and her book is Imperial Bodies in London, and I want to talk about William James Haddon. He's uh, of mixed race, and and of course, we're talking about the empire, late 19th, early 20th century, so racism is definitely going to pop up. Can you you speak to what happened to Haddon?
0: Yeah, so race, as you say, is a really important part of the book, um, and I hope that I take a a very critical approach to race showing both the ways that race is constructed, uh, you know, the way that whiteness is constructed and negotiated and the way that race and the racialization of bodies is a part of how disease is perceived uh, and treated. And I think that Haddon's story is a really good uh, example of that. And it's, it's interesting to talk about because William Haddon is not a probably not someone anyone's ever written about in a history book before. He's a, a person whose story I came upon working uh, in an asylum archive, uh, and it's it's actually quite it's difficult to trace the stories of um, non-white people of of people of mixed ethnicity uh, in the archives because that there's no you know you, you might cl- you know tick whether someone's male or female but there's no category for race typically. Um, But we do find, because racism is such an important part in the way that people perceive others, uh, that asylum attendants will find some way um, to let you know that the patient is not White and there's often a lot of judgments that come with that. So, for example, in Haddon's case record, they say what class of patient is this? And that usually refers to how wealthy or how educated they are. I think for Haddon, they say he's a third-class patient, which is insane because William Haddon is a is a practicing physician um, who went to uh, a prestigious university and comes from a physician family. Um, so you just see the way that yeah, that class and race are sort of intersected. And without getting too much into you know, the, the personal story of William Haddon. He's someone who comes from a, a, a mixed family um, whose great, I think his grandfather was Scottish and came to India. Um, and then, you know, they had a family there and he's descended from this family and he and his and his brothers are very successful. They travel back to England and they train as physicians in, in Edinburgh. His brother's also a physician. And then they work in India. And then he works uh, in the United Kingdom and marries a, a an English lady. And has children. um, But he struggles with mental illness throughout his life, uh, both in India and in the UK. And the reasons for this are always a bit up into interpretation. Um, And what I'm arguing in the book is that here is a case that you would totally expect to say this is sunstroke insanity. This is someone who's gone mad because they lived in India. That's, that's what the that's what the diagnosis would have been if this was a white person. Um, But because it's not a white person, they make the argument that the insanity is coming from syphilis and that it's something to do with sexual deviancy. Um, So it's, of course, a very sad case. Um, it, It could well be someone who who eventually dies of, of the complications of syphilis. I I don't know. We can only look at what the asylum attendants are writing, but what I'm trying to show is the way that, yeah, the bodies are racialized in the way that sort of mental health diagnoses change based on how the physicians perceive the person. Uh,
1: And and that's a good segue um, to, to the diversity uh, of the empire. Um, But, Uh, I have to kind of close this out here. And and I I think your book is so super timely because it, it, well, we're in the midst of our own global pandemic right now. And it has proven to be a rather diverse, uh, ever morphing uh, virus and attacking so many different people from around the world. And and then I'm looking at your book, which was Imperial. and. it I just can't not help make the parallels between kind I guess congratulations you wrote a book during a published during the pandemic I don't
0: know <laughs> oh yeah uh, that's true I mean I think in when uh, my uh, when I was th- thinking about my book in terms of the pandemic I thought to myself oh no I really should have written a book about infectious disease <laughs> because really I've written a book about chronic illnesses uh and kind of mental health issues and um, malaria and things that come back over and over again um but at the same time I think um, We've, we've dealt with epidemics so much sort of throughout human history, and sometimes in those epidemics, which are very sad and, of course, very important, we can overlook um, a lot of the day-to-day health issues. And I know that's also been an issue with coronavirus, people who can't get the cancer help they need, people who can't manage chronic conditions they have. So I, I hope that it's also sort of a, a plea to think about, um, so yeah, to keep a, a bigger picture.
1: So, Kristen, what are you going to be working on next?
0: Oh, Um, my current project, actually, um, I'm currently a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen and I'm doing work, which is a little bit different, about the rhythmic body uh, and the idea that our bodies um, live in a rhythm and cycles and how the idea of time and timing influences health and disease in the late 19th century. So, again, a lot of interest in speed, interest in technology, in electricity, and how um, sleeping and eating and these day-to-day rhythms are affected by modernity.
1: Magnificent. I've been talking with uh, Kristen Hussey, fantastic book, Imperial Bodies in London, Empire Mobility and the Making of British Medicine, 1880 to 1914. Kristen, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Joan, for some really insightful questions. I really enjoyed talking about that.